Thank you guys so much for coming. And well, why don't we start by praying, and then we'll talk a little bit about the disciplines and some other housekeeping things, and uh, we'll get into our discussion groups this morning, and then uh, Jacob can teach his lesson. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for we give thanks to you for life, and that we just get to breathe your air again and enjoy the taste that you put into food. And we get to drink your water and your drink. Lord, you have given rebels um, a kindness and a, a goodness that they do not deserve, that we do not deserve, and we're thankful. Lord, we just need to set our sights rightly, even at square one on things like that. Uh, it's humbling for us, and yet it just draws out of us also love for you, that you would be this way towards us. Of course, our affections for you are stirred up most by what we know your son did at the cross and at his empty tomb for us, and ultimately for your glory. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would help us to grow closer to your, your son, our Savior, and that you would bring to mind old truths that uh, need to be revived within us. And perhaps you might even lead us to truth that we are unaware of that we must know today. Help us to know you well. Help us to know ourselves well. Um, what condition we are in so that we might be able to properly shepherd ourselves towards you through your word, by your spirit's help. And so God, we just commit ourselves to you this morning and pray for you to meet with us as we draw near to you and your word. <laughs> bless our fellowship together in our discussion groups, Lord. Help us to remember that um, we are in a fight together and we are not competing against one another. We are not trying to put on a show to anybody else, but we are just simply trying to grow in our relationship and our knowledge of Jesus and we need to be an encouragement to one another. So God, I pray for each man here that I'm so grateful that you know the condition of their heart and mind. For those who are discouraged and where they are at and their pursuit of you, Lord, I pray that you would draw near to them and, and care for them this morning through your truth and through the ministry of the other men around them. And for those who are doing well, Lord, I pray that they would rejoice and that they would be thankful in their hearts for um, the progress you are granting them never taking it for granted, never reaching to push the cruise control button. Or may they continue to press on and then look for ways to help others who need the help in pursuing you. So God, we commit ourselves in our morning to you, ask for you to bless it so that you are glorified in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to uh, remind you guys again of, of our um, continued great need in this church for um, teachers and leaders in our next generation ministries, our kiddos from grade five on down. Um, there is, especially at the, well, at every level, but I know at the lower levels, at the youngest ages, we just really need some help. And, and, and again, um, Man, this is one of the greatest things you can do is, is uh, just step into a place and, and, and serve. 
Um, I, I know sometimes what, what goes through our minds is, well, I'm not really sure that's where God has gifted me. And that is one way to be thinking about where you should serve. You, you should think about where, how God has equipped you and how he has gifted you to, to serve. I wouldn't want you to not think about that. Um, but another way to think about that needs to go along with that is, is where is the need in, in this church family? And if the church family is saying, hey, we're hemorrhaging over here in the best way possible because more and more kids keep coming to this church and you're available, well, I, I think that would be a good thing for you to consider. If you want to have a conversation about that or what it looks like, um, you can talk to me today. You can talk to, obviously, Tom. You can grab him on a Sunday, Eric Martin, any of the guys, who uh, the deacons who serve. I even put on the back table um, in a stack of the NGM applications. Uh, it's a front page and a back page. All you got to do is fill it out um, and hand it in. And then uh, Tom or one of the guys will contact you and, and start the ball rolling on a conversation about what it might look like for you if you were to serve. Um, if you were serving at one point and stepped out and you're in a season of life or maybe you can step back in, I'd encourage you to think about that. One of the things that we're having to do in, in um, Next Generation Ministries is we're having to take the classrooms that are normally split apart and we're having to consolidate them. And so you may be, you know, some of the teachers, because we have such a short rotation, uh, are teaching 25, you know, 30 kids, and that's a lot. Uh, there's lots of help in there, support help, but um, it would be great if we had enough teachers and rotations that we could take some of those classes and split them back up again. So, anyway, would you just please prayerfully consider that? Your, your church has a need, uh, a big need, and it would be great if you could uh, help us out with that. All right, take your notebook and turn it over to the back. Um, you have second string uh, build reviews or discipline reviews because Scott Demarest is not here, and so I have to uh, step in in his place. I love how he thinks about the disciplines um, and is thoughtful to lead you guys in what these disciplines are. Remember, we're trying to build the disciplines of faithful leaders. If you're working off a notebook that's um, not brand new this year, you're going to see six disciplines down there. We changed down to five because six disciplines are just too many for guys to think about. So we... No, we didn't do that. Like, if, if that were the case, there would be one discipline on the back, wouldn't there, guys? That's right. Three words. Three words, yeah. Wake up. Yes. Yeah. Um, discipline one begins with the heart. And today's lesson that Jacob will take you through, uh, you'll just see this pounded again into um, your heart and mind. Uh, but with discipline one, this is where you need to be disciplined first and most um, is, is with your own heart. And what we mean by heart is what the Bible means by heart. And the Bible does not describe the heart as a piece of you, like your hand is a part of you. The Bible talks, when the Bible talks about your heart, the Bible's talking about you. But it's who you are inwardly before God. Uh, your mind is another way of referring to who you are inwardly as a thinker, as a ponderer, as a contemplator. Uh, before God. And so you need to be disciplined with you. I don't know if you if you even have thought about this, but when, when you finally become um, saved, when, when God saves you, um, he took you from that, what we talked about, an unmixed condition. You couldn't separate yourself away from your sin and from your sensuality and from your, your rebellion. 
Uh, your mind and your heart were fixed together. When he saved you, he made you in a mixed condition. And now for the first time, you can actually think rightly about yourself. You can look with a degree, a degree of objectivity on yourself. You can look and say, um, what I am is not right. What I'm thinking is not right. Before, you had no ability to accept agree with what you're thinking. And so now you have this ability to look within and to be able to discipline yourself. How do you do that? You do not look within with your own thoughts. You examine yourself inwardly through the word of God. And so you discipline yourself, you discipline your heart, you shepherd your heart by bringing it to God's word, the objective truth that never changes based on any circumstance change. And you bring yourself to the word of God and you expose your inner man to the word of God and you let God speak to who you are. And you are the one who must do that. Your, your mom can't do that for you. Your wife can't do that for you. Your kids can't do that for you. You have to do that for you. And that's where everything begins. The faithful leader shepherds his heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God. You don't come to the Word of God to check off a box so that when you go to discussion group, you can say, I read. You don't come to the Word of God because you know on Monday morning there's going to be that debate again at the water cooler and you've got to win this time. You don't come to the Word of God merely to to put your lesson together for NGM tomorrow and know that you you did it. You, You come to the Word of God so that you can worship the God of the Word, right? That's the kind of man you must be. If you get that, if you get that right, if you strive for that where you are in the Word of God in order to worshipfully pursue the God of the Word, everything else will come in time. It won't be perfect. But if you get that, you have the foundation being laid in your life, okay? If you don't get that, everything else you do will be hollow, be husk, it'll be chaff. So you you must labor hard there first, often, and most. Once you're doing that, as you're doing that, discipline too is very important that the first place of impact that um, a man should make would be those he lives with. Um, So those in your house, the faithful leader is concerned for those in his home and he shepherds them toward God with the word of God. What you are, the the aroma of what you are in the gospel and in the word of God as a believer needs to just emanate forth from you in your house. Uh, Your wife, your kids, your roommates, your, your parents, whoever you live with should feel this and know this, experience this from you, that you are a man who wants to meet with God in his word. You're helping others do that as well. Uh, This is not first grade and then second grade, the heart and then home. Um, These are things or areas of priority, but not strict sequence where you finish one and you never go back to it. You're always working on these things. Um, How many men do you know who have labored in the church in their ministry and they leapfrogged over (coughs) their household and then there was a mess that the church had to deal with. Um, we, we can't play leapfrog over our homes. Certainly can't play leapfrog over your, your heart. You must work and push through always everything <coughs> through your heart, through your home. And then you step into the third discipline, the discipline of the ministry. The faithful leader with a heart and a home oriented toward God and his word steps into the GBC family to shepherd others toward God with the word of God. 
Now you want to step into the lives of other people. And you know what a benefit that will be to you guys? The benefit will be one of integrity and a clear conscience. Not because you're perfect. Not because you've got it nailed down. You don't, and you never will. Um, but there will be a level of integrity where you know that as you're shepherding and, and encouraging and exhorting and maybe even rebuking a brother in the church, um, that you know that that man will know that you're living what you are telling them in your home and you're dealing with your own heart as you are encouraging them to deal with their heart. Um, so that's the level of integrity. Those, those three disciplines right there are really the, the foundational ones for build. That's what the women in Wellspring um, are laboring with as well. Um, but because you are men and because God has a place for men in um, the church and in your home, I don't know if you, you know this, I'm sure you probably do, but, but you are a leader. By the very fact that you're a man. And you must be a leader in your home. And so that's why you need to be a faithful leader. It's not about whether or not you should be a leader or not. I'd hope you would never say, I'm not sure if I'm a leader or not. No, just say, I am a leader. The question is, what kind of a leader will I be? Um, And what we want to do is put before you the qualifications that are found in Scripture. And so we want you to be disciplined about those qualifications. Uh, Discipline four, the faithful leader prayerfully pursues the character of a qualified deacon or elder in the church according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. That's where the two lists are found. Um, So I want to just encourage you, and we'll do this at some point later in the year. We'll teach through the elder qualifications and we'll teach through the deacon qualifications And we want you to just be able to prayerfully consider those qualifications, those qualities of life. There is not one uh, character qualification given to an elder that is not also given to all believers. Elders are to be above reproach, but you are to be blameless children who are above reproach in a perverse generation. Philippians 2. Um, It's not just that elders are are supposed to be uh, not fighters, but you shouldn't be a guy who raises a fist to settle an argument. And none of us should be that way. Um, so you, we want to put before you the character qualifications that are already the ones that you need to be possessing in your life, but maybe pray in a, in a manner that God might make you exemplary in those qualities so that you might be above reproach as an elder uh, or a deacon in the church. Certainly, if not those two things, just a, an above reproach leader in your home because that's where God has you leading And then lastly, Discipline 5, the hermeneutic. The faithful leader disciplines himself to carefully interpret the word of God to discover what God meant by what God said in his word. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought, you may not even know what hermeneutics is. Um, It's just the the basic uh, rules of how you interpret words. Uh, And there is not a special behind-the-veil way of interpreting these words that apply only to this book and not to others. The way that you deal with language on a daily basis and the way you want people to deal with your words is how we deal with these words. And all the more we should be careful with these words, though, because these aren't just any ordinary word. These are the words of God. Um, And so you're already doing hermeneutics every day. When you read an email, you're doing hermeneutics. You're applying rules for interpreting. Uh, You don't just make up stuff of inject meaning into what a person wrote um, of which they did not mean. And why don't you do that? Because you don't want people to do that to your words. You expect them to understand the context in which you wrote your words and to take it at its face value of what you wrote. And all we're going to do is draw attention to the obvious when we do hermeneutics. 
towards the end of the year. Um, and it is a discipline. It's a discipline. You have to be disciplined when you have words before you to control yourself. That you will not let other ideas come crashing in and flood into those words and make it say something that it doesn't say. You actually have to control yourself that it's God's word. I will hold back my perceptions, and my, my opinions, and my thoughts, and my preferences, and I will first allow God's word to say what it says and shape my opinions and my preferences. I think that takes, that takes self-control. Uh, where do the wacky ideas come from from Christians? When they don't exercise self-control. When they, when they take their Bible and they say, oh God, I need something today. That's it. Yes. There's no self-control in it. Uh, and there's any a number of ways to really mess that up. But we want you to be disciplined even with how you interpret the words of God. You need to discover what God meant by the words that he wrote. What's your life? This is the best that you can have of God now. You must have the best of Okay? All right. With that in mind, we will break off into our discussion group. So, today we're going to be going over Proverbs 4.23. Um, so, I and, and all the elders, we're so grateful that the terms shepherd your heart, guard your heart, that they've become so commonplace at grace, right? We, we talk about how sometimes in Christendom it becomes so easy, and even in our own hearts it becomes so easy to focus on the externals. But what's, what's sweet is there's just an instinct and a, uh, it's almost like a reflex. When I'm at small group, people ask, how's your heart doing? Right? We, we have the core discipline of build and wellspring is your heart. Um, so we've been intentional to place this emphasis on the heart. Right, it's the same emphasis that we think the Bible places on the heart. It's, it's my prayer and my goal this, that after this morning, each of you will be even more convinced than you already are of the necessity and primacy of heart guarding for every Christian. And I do pray that each of us will be more motivated and better equipped to begin guarding our hearts and that that would actually be the outcome. That it wouldn't be merely that we're convinced of the necessity, but that we would actually do it. So our passage today will be Proverbs 4.23. You can open your Bibles there. Solomon tells us that above all else, of first importance, that we must guard our hearts this is foundational for the Christian life. As you know, we must never graduate from heart guarding, from heart shepherding. Right? That's, that's why we go through every single week, discipline one. Turn over your binder, discipline one. We can never graduate from that. Um, so let's, let's pray before we get into God's word. God, I, I beg that as we have your word open in front of us, as I speak and seek to expose the truth of your word, I beg that you would guard and guide my words, that they would be faithful to yours. I beg that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. And first and most, we would worship you. 
when we see you revealed. God, I beg that you would grant us understanding by your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, please grant my heart and the hearts of of my hearers here to be in a submissive posture before you as we approach your word. We don't need your Holy Spirit to understand these words, but we need you to submit to them. We need you to change <coughs> us through these, through the reading and the study of your word. God, these are your words contained in scripture. They have the same power that when you spoke words, you brought everything into existence. It was God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The same God spoke into our hearts to bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, words can be more powerful than we can comprehend, and I beg that my words would be faithful to yours. God, transform us, sanctify us. If there's any here who are not saved, God, I beg that the the teaching of your word and the revelation of you would bring them to an end of themselves, that they would cling to you in repentance and faith. God, I pray that we would despair of any hope, any hope of behavior modification, of making ourselves look better, and that we would turn to you even more fully this morning, the only one who can deal with us from the heart. God, I pray, I beg, I need you to apply this to me first. God, I can't stand up here as one who's teaching a message that I've mastered, but as a a fellow student and beggar, helping other beggars find the bread. God, please keep my heart supple and submissive to these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so look down at Proverbs 4.23. It's incredibly simple, yet profound. Armed with the simple and profound truth of Proverbs 4.23, we're going to be better equipped to understand the importance of the battle for our heart. You're going to be better equipped to pursue God and fight sin. You'll be better equipped to apply the gospel to your own life. You'll be better equipped to shepherd your heart, better equipped to care for your home, better equipped to minister within this church. So Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. In Proverbs 4.23, it's really easy. There's three parts. There's a what, there's a how, and there's a why. So look down and identify them with me. By what, I mean it's a command. What, what's the command of Proverbs 4.23? Solomon, the wise father, has a command for his son. And it's simple. It's guard your heart. You can look at other English versions to see the the other ways we could talk about this. Maybe expose some nuance of meaning. It's like keep your heart, watch over your heart, or guard your heart. Pretty simple. how How is Solomon's son, how are we supposed to do this? Above all else, with all vigilance, with all diligence. That calls us to the importance. It makes us aware of the importance of this. We're going to touch on that later. 
And then the why. This is, this is really the key to the passage that you can't skip. There's a, there's a what, there's a how, and there's a why. Why is Solomon's son supposed to guard his heart with all vigilance above all else? Well, because it's the source of his life. It's the wellspring. That's what we call the women's ministry, reminding them of Proverbs 4.23. It's the, the source. It's the springs of their life. Really the, the source from which all of their behavior, their thoughts, all of their life, all of our lives flow. Proverbs 4.23, super simple to understand. You probably now have it memorized, right? Guard your heart above all else because it's the spring or the source of your life. Commit it to memory. But let's start, start digging a little deeper. We're going to start this morning looking at the why. Okay. So remember, there's a, a what, a how, and a why. We're going to sort of start backwards. We're going to look at the why, dig into to what all of Scripture says about this. Think of some of the implications. The heart is the well, or the source, from which all other behaviors spring. Right? We described, Scott was teaching about it, it's the, the inner you. But what does that mean? It means everything that you do, you say, where did that come from? Have you ever done something and thought, where did that come from? You, you almost say, that's not me. That, that can't be. Because everything that you do comes from your heart. So, so think about uh, maybe some of your least flattering behaviors this week, this morning. Your least flattering thoughts. Look back over your life and say, where did that come from? Exploding at your roommates, maybe a short temper with your wife. Anger at your children, entertaining or acting on sinful fantasies, laziness, gossip, lying, sharp speech, impatience, anxiety, name it. Where did that come from? You know the answer. That sin and indeed everything you do, whether good or bad, every action, thought, deed, or word, think of it like water that flowed from the source. And Proverbs 4.23 says that source is your heart, your inner you. Knowing that is one thing. It's really easy, but knowing that and thinking well about it will help us get at the root of these sins. But even better, it prepares us for the, the great gospel solution to the heart of our problems. Right? And it will guide us towards walking in purity of life. So we have to get the foundational why to Proverbs 4.23 before we can start working out the rest of it. So the, the inspired Solomon that gives that profound illustration for your life. Everything you think, everything you do, Everything you say, it's like flowing water coming from that common source. Obviously, this isn't your physical blood-pumping heart, but rather it's the term the Bible uses to describe the most inner you. But actually, the, the word heart is helpful. If we think about that, it's, it's a helpful illustration. Um, let's, let's think about that. There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Or put another way, right? 
there's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Or we could say it a different way. There's no part of your life that your heart doesn't affect. I'm going to say that again. It's, it's simple but profound. There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. And there's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. The image here is of a city's vital water source. Right? Pure water at the source can provide everyone in the city with pure water. But if that source is contaminated, there'd be no hope for pure water. And this is a problem for humans. This is a problem for us because the Bible describes the heart in some pretty unflattering terms. <clears throat> Consider Jeremiah 17.9. What does it say? <coughs> it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then consider that God, when he saw the wickedness in man's heart, in Genesis 6, 5, he was moved to kill every human on earth except for Noah and his family. Turn there, Genesis 6, 5, and look at what God's assessment of the human heart is. Genesis 6, 5. Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Underline this. That every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of his heart, of his wellspring, was only evil continually. God sent the flood. Flood didn't fix man's heart problem. Right? That description of man's heart as only evil continually, it's just as true today as it was before the flood. There is no part of your life that doesn't flow from this wellspring, right? And this wellspring, and if this wellspring is deceitful, desperately sick, and only evil, it doesn't bode well for what's going to come out. Based on Proverbs 4.23, what would you expect to come from the man with this evil life source? Right, A poisoned well can only produce poisoned water. A wicked, unrighteous heart can produce only wicked, unrighteous actions. And always consistent with itself and the truth. And the truth, this is exactly what we find God's assessment of mankind's unsaved heart is in his word. All right, we're going to do some, some math. Genesis 6, 5. This is at the bottom of your first page, I believe. Genesis 6, 5. Right, every intention of his heart is only evil. Plus Proverbs 4, 23, that says the heart is the wellspring of life that naturally would lead us to the conclusion of, of exactly what Romans 3, 10 through 12 says. Romans 3, 10 through 12, quoting Psalms 14, 1 through 3, says exactly what you would expect. No one is righteous. 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. No one naturally has a, pure, has a good heart. And no one, no, not one, does good before God. Obviously we're talking here of the man in his unmixed condition. Right? We are a bunch of wicked people, all of humanity apart from God. A bunch of wicked people with unrighteous lives because we have wicked hearts. And this is the description of unregenerate man living in an unmixed, sinful condition. But remember, God doesn't leave the Christian in this situation. Speaking of the new covenant with Israel that Christian Gentiles get to enjoy as well. God says in Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Listen to this. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised Israel that he will someday give them a heart transplant. That would be their only hope for cleaning. This hasn't yet happened for all of Israel, but it is what God does when he saves us. What vivid imagery this is. I think for me it's particularly vivid. Let me help you get in my shoes a little bit. I, I get to administer anesthesia every day. And it's cool. I get to do that in cardiac anesthesia in particular. And I get to see just how important a healthy physical heart is. When a patient begins to do poorly, one of the first things I want to do is to shove an ultrasound probe down their throat so I can be millimeters behind their heart with an ultrasound probe seeing what the heart of the problem is. I want to see what, what's going on at the source. How's the heart pumping? And inevitably, when a patient's doing poorly, the problem lies at the heart. Um, I can't merely give a treatment that fixes the symptoms. I give medicines or drugs that work at the heart. And if I want, to, want it to be effective, that's where I have to go. And what's particularly sobering is, is when you think about really bad heart failure. Just when, when blood, when the heart goes bad, the body goes bad. When the heart goes bad, the blood stops flowing effectively. God designed healthy hearts to be elastic. <coughs> the more blood you put in them, the bigger they stretch and the harder they pump. They're, they're ready to stretch. As venous blood pours in and, and then it vigorously pumps the oxygen-rich blood throughout the body. Right? That's why you can exercise. The more you exercise, the more blood's coming back, the better it pumps in a good heart. But when a heart's diseased or has its blood supply seriously compromised, that supple heart, it becomes literally like stone. So <coughs> back to it, to Ezekiel. It, it, the Ezekiel passage is so good. 
Um, it, I mean, it, the, sorry, the, the illustration of, of the, the new heart is so good because it's, it's like when, when a heart becomes in failure, it's, it's like a stone. The, the blood goes in, the heart doesn't stretch, it just dilates, fills up, and the body dies. The blood passively flows in, the heart won't stretch to accommodate it, and it pumps so weakly that organs are starved. Cognitive function deteriorates, lungs fill with fluid, kidneys shut down, muscles stop working, and the body's incapacitated with weakness and lethargy, ultimately leading to misery and death. I wish I could keep talking about that. It's exciting for me, but I know not for everyone. <laughs> but it's, it is remarkable to see how this dying body is rejuvenated with a heart transplant. If a stony heart is removed and replaced by a healthy heart, the person becomes like a new person. The dying organs are rejuvenated by new blood flow. A slow mind quickens and weak muscles strengthen. A near dead organs begin to function. A body that looked like death is filled with new life. Christian, you had an old, dead heart of stone. You did. <coughs> and God gave you a new heart of flesh. This is what God did to you, Christian, when he saved you. God took your dead heart out and he replaced it with a new heart. You were born again, John 3.3. 3. You are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. God has given you a new heart. At regeneration, God declared us righteous and he changed us from the heart so that we would, for the first time, have the ability to obey God and love God from the heart. We still live in a mixed condition, right? We still have our sinful flesh. We're still able to sin. But we must not be so aware of our old man, of our flesh, that we skip over this amazing reality. For the first time, you are able not to sin. You're able to please God. You're able to shepherd your heart from sin and to God. Why? Because you have a new heart. Now with this new heart, we've, having been declared righteous in justification, you've been set on a trajectory to increasingly live out that righteousness through sanctification. We used to be slaves to sin because our heart was sinful. We used to be disobedient from the heart. But look at Romans 6.17. It tells us what God has done. Romans 6.17, and it, Paul starts appropriately. If this is old theological truth, don't let yourself be unmoved this morning. Start the way that Paul starts in Romans 6.17. He says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. How? The only way the gospel knows to make you obedient. It makes you obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, 
You've become slaves of righteousness. John Flavel, a 17th century Puritan, said it well. He said, the heart of man is his worst part before salvation, and it is his best part after it. I'm going to take a moment to plug a book. We have this at the book table. It's called Keeping the Heart by John Flavel. It's almost 400 years old. Highly recommend it. And it goes through much longer than I can this morning. Um, some of the ways to keep the heart. But this is, this is the foundational truth, exactly what we're founding our, our lesson today. The heart of man is his worst part before salvation. It's his best part after it. Praise God and thank him for that. Seriously, stop right now. I'm going to do that. Stop right now and in your heart, praise and thank God for, regen for his regenerating work in your heart. For many, this is old news, a theological truth with which you're familiar. Maybe a theological concept to analyze. And familiarity can sometimes rob us of an opportunity to worship. are oftentimes not as thankful as we should be for the things with which we're familiar. Right? The air you breathe, the food you eat, the fellowship you enjoy, the new heart we have within us. MacArthur has said it well. He said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Do not let your heart be hardened to awesome theological truths especially this one. Before this glorious truth of the gospel, fight today and every day under the blazing, hot, magnificent truth from God's word. Fight that your heart would be soft wax, melting before its heat, instead of clay hardened by familiarity. Proverbs 4.23 told us that the heart is the wellspring of our lives, and that would be horrible, hopeless news if it were not for this great news, the gospel, that when God saves us, <coughs> he changes us from the heart. And the change that the gospel brings, it's not superficial, therefore. If you're a Christian, you've been changed from the very core of who you are. You've been changed from the wellspring of your life, your heart. So let <coughs> everything else you learn today, everything you resolve to do today, Sit under the shadow of the massive truth of the gospel. If God has not changed you from the heart, you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, but you're just here doing religious things, trying to clean yourself up, know for sure that religious efforts are futile because they're not for God's glory and they flow from a wicked heart, they could be bundled in that Romans 3 description of you. Even these things are among those no one does good, no not one actions. And in a room this size, there's a good chance that some here have not been changed from the heart. That some have been content with religion. Please consider if this is you. 
this is you from, from the heart, or if you tend towards this way of thinking, uh, despair of any goodness you thought you might have on your own, and turn to God in desperate faith, and ask him to cleanse you from the heart. The problem of sin comes from the heart, right? And the solution has to deal with the heart. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wisely advised his church, Till the spirit has regenerated the soul, all outward religion will be but a dead and pitiful thing. To make up a religion of doing or saying something that is good, while the heart is void of the spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace, is the hypocrite's religion. To pretend that you're holy through religious exercise and hard work, while your evil heart remains unchanged? That's the religion of the Pharisees that God will be glorified to judge and whose practitioners will spend an eternity in hell under God's righteous wrath. But praise God, he has no interest in religion. And through the gospel of Jesus' work at the cross, God gives us new hearts. Romans 6.17, thanks be to God, you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. So if you're not a Christian, please repent of your sins and trust in God to forgive you for those sins and to give you this new heart. Free to love him. Christian, your heart is precious not only because it's the source from which your life flows, but because it was made new through the gospel. You were a slave to sin because your heart was sinful. And now you're a slave to righteousness because he changed your heart. Let's go back to Solomon's illustration. Imagine a city with a poisoned well. Especially in the days without water filtration where they were just dependent right on, on the water source. Imagine a city with a poisoned well. The city could not flourish, Right? In fact, the city would only be full of death. Then one day the king filled in that old poisonous well and he dug another one, one that was pure. Immediately the new city, or the city was made new, right, and full of life. Those who were once weak and anemic, dying from the poison, had a taste of that which they never knew, pure water. Those in that city, they would know the importance of guarding the well. Right? They would know they knew intimately the effects of a tainted well. And they now know the joys of purity. Those people would know the importance of a pure water source. And do you know what thought would never cross their mind? I wonder how much poison I could let back in that well and still be okay. No, they would guard that well with all vigilance above all else because they would know that their very lives depended on it. Christian, we are those people. And in light of this illustration, consider this quote from Charles Spurgeon. The poison of the soul is only sin. And this is like to poison in many respects. 
think about it, poison, wherever it enters the body, it stays not there, but it diffuses itself all over the body, and it doesn't stop until it has infected all of it. Such is the nature of sin. Enter where it will, it creeps from one member of the body to another, and from the body to the soul, till it has infected the whole man. D1. And then, from man to man, till the whole family. This one too. And stays not there, but it runs like a wildfire from family to family until it has poisoned a whole town and a whole country and a whole kingdom. Woeful experience, he said, proves this true. The poison of sin isn't content to stay in your own heart. It will seek to destroy you. And then your home, then your ministry, and your small group in this church. And beyond. What poison are you dabbling with? Think about that for a second. What poison are you dabbling with? Have you asked the question, how much poison can I let back in my well and still be okay? Remember purity. Remember the source of that purity and the joys of purity. Remember the death of your own life and your own heart. And don't stop at anything to guard your well. For the sake of your life, your home, and our church, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. The truth that the heart is the wellspring of life, it leads very naturally to Solomon's command. To the what? Beginning of Proverbs 4.23. Right? We couldn't help but talk about the, the why without getting to the what. It's, it's guard your heart. Sin is the poison. Purity is to be protected. So guard your heart. Notice with me that Solomon is speaking to his son, and he gives the instruction as a command. Guard is an imperative. It's a command. It's not optional. And it certainly isn't something passive. It is active. The word used here for guard, watch, keep, it's the same word that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe an alert sentry in a watchtower, like one on a Judean mountainside, guarding valuable resources. A city dependent on a pure water source, they'd obviously place their best sentries around the spring to protect the purity of their water. In a city at war would always have guards on the watch, knowing that very real threats could appear at any moment. We have a precious, newly pure water source with ever-present threats. Seeking to poison the well, we must guard our hearts. So how? How are we to guard our hearts? How can we keep the source of our life pure? We actually just looked at a key passage for this in your homework from last week. David, in essence, asked this question in Psalm 119, verse 9. Read it with me. He said, how can a young man keep his way pure? That's basically the same question. Say, how can I guard my heart? How can a young man keep his way pure? How would you answer this question? Right? When you read Proverbs 4.23, and you think... Guard my heart. 
with all vigilance, what comes to mind first? Let's go to, to Psalm 119 and see what the best answer to this question is. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. How did David guard his heart? David guarded his heart with God's word. More explicitly, David guarded his heart by seeking God through his word. As you guard your heart, you will be protecting it from evil. Right? No poison allowed in. Not wandering from his commandments. You will be careful who and what you allow close. You'll never ask, how much poison can I let back in here? You will be careful to fight temptation. You won't think that your heart can tolerate just a little bit of evil. You will protect your heart from exposure to things that would poison the wellspring if you want purity. But what's purity? It's, it's a wholeness of heart. It's, it's having a heart be about one thing, one nature characterized as something that's pure. And what does David say? With my whole heart, Say it with me. With my whole heart, I seek you. So you see here that more fundamental to guarding your heart, it isn't just what you keep out. But more fundamentally, it's what you keep in. Seek God with all your heart. As we guard the wellspring of our heart, we must be shepherding our hearts to the word of God to get the God of the word. In your guarding of your heart, make sure make sure that you're not shepherding it to a pharisaical behavior-focused religion. Right? Cleaning the outside, making it look good. But to God and the gospel. Let's look at the New Testament, at the New Testament. This is sort of an ultimate illustration, I think, to David's heart purifying, God-seeking in Psalm 199. Turn to 1 John, chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John 3, verse 2. And John starts with reminding us of what we've been made in the gospel. He says, to people who might be tempted to, to not see God's work in their life, maybe be more aware of the flesh side of their mixed condition, um, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, God has changed you. He has even made you his child. But this change of nature, although drastic, it isn't yet complete. 
What we will be has not yet appeared, John says. But one day, when we see God as he is, in a moment we will be made to look like him. The transformation will be complete. This flesh that so easily entangles us, which is so easily contaminates us, will be removed. And we will be pure through and through, even as God himself is pure. But this passage doesn't merely make us give up hope of any purity now and wait for that day. But I think if we think through it, this passage gives us hope that we are God's children now and purification is possible. How? Well, first let me ask, how will purity come on the day when Jesus returns? John didn't leave it to say just magically, you're going to be made pure. He told us the how. We're going to see God as he is. Our eyes will gaze upon him, we'll see him as he is, and we'll be made pure. Where does God most clearly reveal himself to us now? In his word? So just as David keeps his way pure by seeking God in his word, the New Testament Christian is to hope on God fixing the gaze of his heart on him as we look for him revealed in his word. As we hope in him and we flee heart-contaminating sin, and that's what the verses which follow these verses say, we are purified more and more into what we shall be as glorified children of God when he returns. Do you get this? The means of pursuing and guarding our hearts daily and the means of our ultimate heart purification on that day, they're not dissimilar. Right? How does David keep his heart pure? According to your word, with my whole heart I seek you. You can gaze on him with the, the eyes of our heart where he's clearly revealed in his word, but on that day, we can see him with our eyes. And we'll see him as he is. We'll be made pure. I can't wait for that day, but thank God we don't have to wait. Do you study theology? How do you study theology? Why do you study theology? Let this truth motivate you to study theology. Not as an end in and of itself, but as a means of pursuing and knowing God for the goal of guarding your heart from sin, but more importantly, to God for the sake of purity. Do you read your Bible? We were just talking about your Bible reading plans. Preach this to yourself before you open God's word. Say, God, as I sit in this chair this morning, I want to finish my reading for the day. I want to get through this, but more important than checking the box or finishing the plan or doing what I promised, more important than that is seeing you. Ask the question right in your journal every day, what does this text reveal about God? See God in the Bible. This is not a book of stories. This is not a how-to manual. This is not 
these are not more good stories with a, with a happy moral ending or something like that. They're not Aesop's fables. These are, this is God's word where he reveals himself to us. Are you looking for that when you open up God's word? So read your Bible daily and meditate on his word throughout the day as a means of pursuing and knowing God for the goal of guarding your heart from sin and to God for the sake of purity. Do you see how important it is to flee sin and fix the gaze of your heart hopefully on God and his word? And how must we do this? Above all else, with all diligence and vigilance. We have a new heart with new love and affection for God, but the flesh within and Satan and temptations without, they're constantly assaulting our heart, seeking to taint it with sin. So right, that city with the new water source at war, oh, it's going to guard its wellspring with all vigilance above all else not content to let even an ounce of poison in. No, we seek our heart by, we guard our heart by seeking God with our whole heart through his word. All the time, every day, no higher priorities, no days off. That's what this says, right? When the Bible says above all else that you should do, um, something with all vigilance, we ought to listen. And according to God's word, what should you do with more attention or more consistently than you're guarding your heart? Nothing. So I'm not talking about guarding your heart. We're not talking about guarding your heart like you might put up a chain link fence or like you lock your doors at night, install security cameras and don't think about it. Those things are good. That's not what we're talking about. That's what you do for sort of important things, right? But we're talking about the most important thing. The thing they do in the gospel. The thing from which everything you do flows. The very you. I'm talking about your heart. What does the United States do for its most important assets? NORAD. North American Aerospace Defense Command. It's, it's placed deep within the Cheyenne Mountains, surrounded by 2,000 feet of granite on every side. And they didn't say, okay, that's enough. They put monitors and sensors all around it, looking for any threat. <coughs> it has thick blast doors, valves to control water supply, and actually has its own multi-million gallon water supply. There's sensors all around looking for any and every threat to its own security and the security of our nation. It could survive a near-direct hit with a nuclear bomb. Have you ever seen the Secret Service around the president? They don't just sort of hang out, right? They're on guard. These are modern-day equivalents to the walls and constant presence of alert sentries. That Solomon probably had in mind when he's trying to give his child an illustration of, of what to do with this most important asset that we have. 
that we as Christians have had made pure. So we're commanded in Proverbs to guard our heart above all else with all vigilance. And we ought to listen. This isn't a suggestion. It's not something that would be good to do in addition to all the other things we do. No, guarding your heart is the most important task of life, and it must be done in all of life. It's not like you say, okay, good, I did my heart guarding in the morning. Now I'm going to go to work, come home, and maybe I'll have a little more heart guarding with the family around dinner table and go do, go watch TV. Right? This is in everything, whether it's reading your word. You can read the Bible without guarding your heart, right? You can certainly commute without guarding your heart. You can go to work without guarding your heart. You can eat dinner without guarding your heart. You can turn on the TV without guarding your heart. Some things are easier than others in which to guard your heart, but you do this in all of life. It's not like something you do every once in a while. It's actually all the time. With no higher priorities. It's like the Secret Service protects the president, like the United States protects NORAD, like a city would protect its water supply. We protect our heart. And remember what that means. It's not merely saying, no sin in. It's saying, with my whole heart, I seek you, God. How does that need to affect your reading of God's word? How does that need to affect the patterns of your day? What you're most aware of at work? What you're most aware of when you talk to your wife or your kids or your roommate. What you're most aware of and what's motivating you when you choose your entertainment, when you set out your schedule, when you make your priorities. Think about that. Write this down. We're going to spend some more time on that at the end. But there's something sobering we need to think about. Consider the one who wrote the book of Proverbs this command Solomon surely he knew the fact that if a life is to be pure and holy unto God the source or the heart had to be pure as well right he, he wrote this but being convinced of the necessity of heart guarding is not sufficient being excited about heart guarding Understanding what I'm saying and saying, yes, I like that. Being able to explain it, being able to teach it. It's not sufficient. Agreeing with Solomon regarding this verse does not automatically mean that you are guarding your heart. Consider Solomon with me as we go. <coughs> verse Kings 11, 1 through 4. Turn there if you want, or just listen. When 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. This is tragic. <clears throat> it's sobering. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart 
way after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. Underline this. His wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. Look at this. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Why was the heart of David his father wholly devoted to the Lord? Go to Psalm 119, verse 9 to know. <clears throat> what happened to Solomon? He knew this. He wrote this. He saw the example of David, his father. David sought God with his whole heart, and Solomon, through a series of heart-poisoning compromises, had his heart turned away. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord as the heart of his father had been. And then consider the horrible effects on Solomon's home and his ministry due to these compromises and heart guarding. His heart turned to false gods. His children did not love God and within a generation... The kingdom was ripped in two, inundated with idolatry, and finally God's people were marched out of their promised land to exile and chains. Little compromises that Solomon was certain he could handle. He was the wisest man who ever lived. He was the king. He built the temple. He was sure he could handle them. But they poisoned the well and all that flowed from it. Solomon knew Proverbs 4.23 better than you and I do. But guarding your heart is much more than knowing the command. It's much more than being excited about guarding your heart and using shepherding your heart lingo. It's much more than going through build. You must actually do it. And the crazy thing is, yesterday's success at guarding your heart, it certainly helps tomorrow's and today's, but it doesn't guarantee it. It's not like the Secret Service can say, hey, no one shot the president in a while, we can start, start relaxing. We have a much more, much real, much more real, much more present danger to our heart. The consequences are much higher. So above all else, more than you pursue food each day, more than you seek to care for your home, more than you diligently care for your children, more than you even make sure that you're successful at work or anything else, above all else, guard your heart. God has given you a new heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit. And he commands you and enables you to guard your heart. You must, we must do this above all else. No days off, right? No higher priorities. This is a lifelong, faithful process. And we know how it'll end. <coughs> We're going to see him as he is. 
And everyone who has hopes on him purifies himself as he is pure. We are saved by God's grace, and we will only guard our hearts by God's grace. Right? How will we be gone? Think to Galatians 3. How, how did we start? By hearing with faith. We're not going to be perfected by the flesh. We can't try to muster up this heart guarding. How did our hearts get formed new to start with? By grace. How are we going to maintain this? Dependence on God's grace. So recognizing the importance of the task and the stakes are high, as you diligently guard, depend on grace. Our new heart was created by God. It will only be sustained by God. And remember, God is not interested in religion. He's not impressed by our efforts. He's not about behavior modification. He's about heart change through the cleansing of the cross and a life lived in light of that. Glorifying him through faith. And it will only come And it's only sustained by seeking him through his word as we flee sin. So as we end, the question I have for you is, how well have you been guarding your heart? Just like a city might monitor its water supply for evidence of poison, so too I think we should evaluate what's flowing from our wellspring to see how the source is doing. Maybe you haven't been guarding your heart Well, starting today, you know that guarding your heart is your most important priority. So let me give you some questions to help you evaluate and guide your heart guarding. This is the homework for this week. Our cities constantly do water purity tests. We check what comes out of our pipes to test the purity of the water at the source. Right? Those tasked with ensuring that we have pure water in our homes... They don't take confidence that you have nice new faucet in your home. They don't look at the polished pipes and fancy water fixtures and say, oh, everything must be good. No, they, they look at the quality of the water as a means of determining the purity of the wellspring. So similarly, Christians, we must be constantly monitoring our hearts and what flows from it. In the shadow of the cross, where Jesus died, to give us new hearts and reconcile us to him. C.J. Mahaney has written in another book that I highly recommend, uh, Living the Cross-Centered Life. We study our hearts in the shadow of the cross as a means of protecting our hearts from the daily presence and opposition of sin. If you don't watch, you'll inevitably weaken. So what does C.J. mean? And he said, in the shadow of the cross. This is so important. Guys, we must watch our heart, but we must be mindful of the cross. What Jesus did there, what he accomplished in the gospel is he gave his life for us. In the shadow of the cross, we find forgiveness. And when sin, when sin is revealed, right in the shadow of the cross, when we evaluate our life and we see sin... We don't despair. In the shadow of the cross, we find hope 
In the shadow of the cross, we're reminded that we were given a new heart. We remember that sin is not our master anymore because we've been changed from the heart. Forgiveness found at the cross, it does not mean that God is not concerned with our obedience. We shouldn't just preach gospel truths to ourselves. If we preach those gospel truths to our heart as a means of guarding our heart for the sake of the purity of the wellspring and everything that flows from it. Right? We don't obey to become righteous. But we obey because God made us righteous from the source. God is more committed to your holiness, your purity of heart, than you or I could ever be. He died to secure it. So in the shadow of the cross, as we pursue purity and repentance from sin, we see those sins in proper perspective as forgiven and not our master. And also in the shadow of the cross, obedience is put in its proper place, right? You and I, we don't obey in order to earn God's pleasure, to earn eternal life or to merit righteousness or standing before God. If we're not careful, we think like that. Have you ever gone to core questions at small group? Hesitant to confess sin and quick to tell all the good stuff you did? Leaving God out of the picture altogether? No, in the shadow of the cross, you can confidently confess your sin with hope of change and and knowledge that this is forgiven. And when you do say something like, I obeyed, it needs to be followed by praise God because you know where that obedience came from. It wasn't from you. At least not the natural you. But it was from the new you. Give the glory to God. In the shadow of the cross, we recognize that our righteousness could not add one iota to the perfect righteousness that we were given, right? But for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. We guard from sin and we pursue God, not to obtain holiness, but because God died for our holiness. I've given you a few questions in the homework that I want you to consider now and then over the following weeks. (coughs) Do not consider these questions without remembering the foundation of them. Right? The, The what, the how, and the why. No doubt you can come up with much better questions tailored to you and what you know your own heart's strengths and weaknesses are. That's the end of the homework. Come up with some on your own. But these questions I came up with should get you started. These are your own heart's water purity check. And remember, where these things reveal sin, you don't clean up the behavior first and most, right? You say, what does this reveal about the heart? Maybe some poison I let in or a way in which I'm not pursuing God with all my heart. Question one. Do you usually sense a presence or absence of affection for God throughout your day? Do you have an appetite for God's word? What does the answer here reveal about the way you've been shepherding your heart or the need to shepherd your heart? Are you daily shepherding your heart to God in his word? (coughs) 
Number four, do your daily routines, including your entertainment choices, internet use, use of free time. Reflect that you are actually guarding your heart above all else. What about your prayers? How do your prayers reflect the vigilance with which you guard your heart? This one's so key to me. Number six, what lures your heart away from God? How diligently do you flee this? What about this? What do you do first thing in the morning? I'll tell you one of the best heart purity monitors for me is my smartphone. We just I don't know if you're like me, but I just mindlessly pick it up. Well, I have 30 seconds. What do I do? Pick up my smartphone. And my phone is a barometer of my heart. It's, 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 right? If everything flows from your life, your thumbs, thumbs actions certainly do. I have, I have five minutes. Where do I go? Angry birds. <laughs> I have five minutes. Where do I go? Facebook. Safari. What do I type in? It's not grossly sin, right? I mean, I'm just checking the news. I'm thinking about good things while I'm killing pigs. <laughs> I'm not saying those things are evil or you shouldn't do angry birds or you shouldn't check your email or whatever, but what you put on your home screen of your phone and being aware of where your thumb goes every time you pick that up, it's a great means of guarding your phone. There's some really good apps if you want some help. <coughs> Uh, Desiring God has one called Fighter Versus. There's another app just called Versus. Or if you're like, how do I meditate on God's word? You, it's a game. If you want to play games on your phone, it's a memory game. <laughs> keep your circles full. If you can keep mem- keep your verses memorized every day, keep your circles full. Um, it's, it's a great way. Your five minutes to guard your heart. Put Logos or whatever Bible thing you want on your phone. Go there and read. Or just when you pick it up, put it down and pray. Put it down and obey. Um, Or as you spend time in other apps, be aware. What is this doing to my heart? How do I guard my heart above all else as I check my email? As I read the news? Because I do Facebook. How does guarding my heart above all else influence if I should do those things? How often I should do those things? How I should do those things? You'll need to come up with two, three water purity check questions of your own. Um, In order to do this, consider where little compromises in your heart guarding first manifest. Right? Think back to the last gross sin that you found yourself in. That didn't just pop up out of nowhere. I guarantee there were little heart guarding or heart compromises leading up to it. Spend some time in prayer, writing, looking back. Where, where do I fall first? I'll tell you for me where it is. It's the snooze button. For me, it's the snooze button. It reflects, I say, I know I need to get up at such and such time in order to make time for myself and God's word. At night, when I'm thinking clearly, 
I say, this is when I need to get up. I look over at my wife and I say, this is when I need to get up. If I don't get up at this time, I'm not going to get in God's word. I'm going to have to start my day. And it's all downhill from there if I'm not guarding my heart from the outset. Huge barometer. And I'll tell you what, what I do with that when that alarm goes off, do I hit snooze or do I get up and turn it off? That affects my heart. Remember, there's no part of your life that isn't affected. Or there's no part of your your heart is not affected. I forget how I said it. Your heart, your, everything in your life affects your heart. Right? Hitting the snooze button affects your heart. And whether you hit the snooze button came from your heart. Um, that's one for me. What is it for you? Come up with those. Um, to the degree to which you're doing a good job here, give God the glory, right? And where there's sin, confess it. And remember that apart from the grace of God, we're helpless to work at the heart level. But by God's grace and the shadow of the cross, we diligently shepherd our heart to God and away from sin. All right, so, so do your homework this week. Really spend time on it. This is not a homework assignment that will serve you well to do next Friday. It might be a good homework to, if you're married, talk about with your wife when you get home and set up some, some times during your, the next two weeks to go through them and then to, to even make a part of your life. So, I want you to also remember that when you see sin, because this will inevitably reveal sin, and even knowing this lesson, there's going to be a tendency to play leapfrog over your heart. Say, oh, this is where I sin. I just need to stop sinning. It's behavior modification. Speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus described the root problem. What did he say? He said, you outwardly appear righteous to others. That's so easy to do. When I confess sin to my wife, I see the need. I don't want to look this way. That's humiliating. I can't be this way as a leader of my home. There's a tendency in me to want to just look righteous to her. But Jesus says, I, I can't be a Pharisee. Outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Water flowing from a poisoned well through nicely polished pipes into a fancy cup, it's still poisonous. A good-looking tomb still has dead men's bones inside. But God's given us life. He's given us a new heart. So don't clean the pipes. Guard, guard the wellspring. I want to end today with a quote by Paul David Tripp in his excellent book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. If my heart is the source of my sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. It is not enough to alter my behavior or to change my circumstances. Christ rather transforms people by radically changing their hearts. If the heart doesn't change, a person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of an external pressure or incentive. But when the pressure or incentive is removed, the changes will disappear. Remember Solomon. Being convinced of heart guarding isn't the same. 
as you pursue heart guarding, don't ever ask how much poison can I let back in here. And you don't guard your heart primarily by avoiding sin. It, you, have, you have to avoid sin. But how do you keep your way pure? According to your word, with my whole heart I seek you. You didn't make your heart pure. That was the work of God. Right? Those descriptions of the wicked heart. You can't do good. That's not us anymore. Praise God for that. Today, as you go to God's word, say, what does this reveal about God? Look at it. Praise him for it. Be changed by pursuing God with your whole heart. Thank you. Um, this is hard. You will grow day by day in this. I'll be here for a few minutes if you have any questions about what we talked about. But you guys are dismissed. I'll pray. God, thank you for, the, for our new hearts. <coughs> We're dependent on you for obedience. God, I pray that you would work this obedience in us. I pray that you would sanctify us more and more today. God, I pray that years from now, we would be more holy than we are today. And God, we long for that day when we get to see you as you are and we're transformed, when we're no longer in a mixed condition, but we're holy, pure, unmixed from our heart, just like you are. God, I, I pray that the effects of our heart shepherding would bless our home, bless our church, and bless the world around us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.